As a new dairy cow owner myself, I cried several times while listening to this episode, where Allison interviews an extraordinary dairy woman who we are about to introduce to you. Working with a dairy cow is an experience on the farm that, in my life, can only be compared to my work as a birth doula. Spending time around a cow, a creature of routine and habit, with incredible sensitivity and usually not afraid to speak her own mind, is a moment that strikes awe and delight into every open heart. Rebecca Holden looks after a large organic dairy herd in Wales, in the United Kingdom, and makes raw, cheddar-style cheese from their milk. What made us want to bring Rebecca to you is an article she wrote for the farm's blog, which she called Heart of the Herd, where she talks about the farm being an interconnected community and how she herself communicates with the cows and has become part of the herd. Mainstream milk and cheese markets seem to be increasingly led by large, chemically sustained dairies that subvert nature and force cows into unnatural production routines, resulting in inferior dairy products landing on grocery store shelves. And yet, Rebecca's farm has been here, doing things organically, for 50 years. We really wanted to know about her world, and we really wanted to share it with you. This episode will take you right into the milking parlor and then out the farm gate into the lush pastures of Wales, and you will feel the sun on your face and feel the swaying cows as they move beside you and you become part of the herd. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. I'm delighted today to welcome Rebecca Holden to the podcast. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. Hi. Rebecca looks after an organic dairy herd in Wales in the United Kingdom and makes raw cheddar-style cheese from the cow's milk. And the thing that really made me want to bring Rebecca to you is an article I read that she wrote for her farm's blog, which she called Part of the Herd where she talks about how the farm is an interconnected community and how she herself communicates with her cows and how she really has become part of the herd of the animals. The mainstream milk cheese market seems to be becoming scarily led by large chemically sustained dairies that work against nature. And Rebecca's farm has been there doing things organically for 50 years and I really want to know about her world and share it with you. Thank you ever so much for coming on and talking to us, Rebecca. Well, thanks for having me. Can you tell me what the last thing you ate is? That's the first question we always ask our guests. Uh, well, we had breakfast a few, quite a few hours ago um, after a swim in the pond to set, set us up for the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously it was based around our raw milk. So it was uh, muesli with some stewed rhubarb and, um, and our milk, which is delicious. 
and then coffee with buttermilk. And do you grow the rhubarb there? I do, and I love rhubarb, and this is the first year that it's really uh, the gift that keeps on giving. Lovely, lovely. Now, I just want to ask about your pond briefly. How cold is it there at the moment? Uh, it's pretty cold, but it is starting to warm up. It's spring-fed, and um, it's an interesting... If we're thinking about um, our intervention in the ecosystem, I really think our pond benefits from us swimming in it every day because part of it is maintenance and a lot of the weed, which means that the light and the oxygen keeps getting in and there's a lot more biodiversity than there would be if we weren't so that's really that's interesting, interesting yeah. to remember. I've, I've never thought about that you know I know a lot about cold exposure and my husband does cold showers here we don't have access to a kind of any natural water like that but I never thought about it from the perspective of the pond life I've only thought about it from the perspective of what it does to your immune system and, and your own health that's really interesting yeah, and I mean, in terms of setting the clock, and I mean, I don't know what I'd do without cold water immersion. I think I'm, uh, I've naturally become or am uh, a jangly person who tends to sort of uh, disintegrate a little bit, uh, dashing between one thing and another. And I think uh, the cold water just reboots me and resets me. Wow. Lovely, it's nice to hear. So tell um, our listeners about your farm about your cows and about the cheese that you make? So we are lucky enough to, to live and exist on this little hill in West Wales. Uh, it's wet this morning, grey skies, but we've had a beautiful week last week. Um, we, far, we own 135 acres. Uh, in total, we probably farm 300. The rest is rented, but mostly adjacent to the hill. So it's, it's the whole hill. Um, top of the hill, the bottom, the, the wet parts. Um, each part of that hill, it's interesting because you've got the, the south, the west, the east, the north um, facing flanks of the hill. So it's, a, it's an interesting hill to exist on. Um, and it's, it's not favoured land, so it's quite tough, um, tough farming. Uh, but, but the challenges and opportunities are, are infinite. Um, and I guess in terms of our end product, cheese, mm. uh, I think cheese makers often think, okay, I need, uh, I want to make this kind of cheese, therefore I need this kind of milk, therefore I'm going to need this kind of cow eating this kind of diet. And they sort of work backwards from their final product. Uh, whereas I would say 50 years on this hill and only the last chapter of, sort of 10, 12 years is cheese making, we start off more confidently as farmers. Uh, so our, we work forward from the fact that we have this hill. Uh, naturally, it wants to do certain things. It's, it's wetland at the bottom and it's thin soils. Um, we can work with that and there are certain things that will grow well and positively. And then we work forward from there saying what sort of animals are suited to this land. Mm -hmm. And in our case, uh, we've chosen uh, mainly the Ayrshire breed of cow. Um, Ayrshire's a native to Scotland. They're a, they're, a, they're a hardy breed that copes well in a wet, on a wet, windy hill. So they're suited to this place. Um, and from there, we want to be as we want that herd to work mainly without too many external inputs. So really living off this hill. And from there, we trust that the milk will be a positive reflection of this hill and, and 
the animals interacting with us. And from there, with very good cheesemakers, uh, we're able to transform that into hopefully delicious raw milk cheese. Yeah. It's so lovely to hear that it's kind of land-led, geography-led, climate-led. It's not saying, okay, what do we want to bring to market and how can we make this space fit that market? It's looking and saying, what is around me and what can I, what can I work with that land to, to produce? Which really is the key to a sustainable diet for all of us. We should all be looking around at what the land around us can provide and then finding ways to bring that into our kitchen. So it's really lovely to hear that that's your entire kind of raison d'etre there. And hopefully that brings through terroir, or in Welsh we call it la satire, which is the taste of the land. Yeah. Are you looking for a powerful source of nutrients to enhance your overall health and well-being? Look no further than beef organ capsules from One Earth Health, where the cattle graze on lush New Zealand pastures. The beef organs are sourced from 100% pasture-raised cattle, ensuring that you receive the highest quality and most nutrient-dense organ meat available. Beef organs are some of the most nutrient-dense foods on earth, with high levels of vitamins A, K, and the B complex. Customers report more energy, improved skin health, and a strengthened immune system thanks to the powerful nutrients found in these organs. For a limited time, One Earth Health is offering our Ancestral Kitchen podcast listeners a 5% discount on all orders and free shipping. We checked and we saw even before any discounts, they were more affordable than other New Zealand-based organ supplements with all the pristine nutritive value we wanted in place. Take advantage of their amazing price and the extra discount and the free shipping. Order now and enjoy the incredible health benefits of One Earth Health's beef organs made with care and quality in New Zealand. Visit oneearthhealth.com slash ancestral kitchen and I'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah. So what's your role particularly within that network? What do you do? Well, on a good day, I'd say I, I fill lots of gaps. On a bad day, I'd say I do a lot of things badly. <laughs> um, I'd say mostly I'm, uh, as, as time has gone on, I've become more involved with the, um, the herd and the milking. So I, I probably do. Uh, we, have, we have a full-time milking who does half the milkings, and then we do the other half. So, um, uh, but, you know, at certain periods, like we've been doing nearly all of it, um, certainly during the COVID. So a, a lot of milking. Um, obviously, with two businesses, the cheese business and the farm business, a lot of paperwork, um, a lot of admin. Mm. Um, and on a, you know, if I'm needed to go in and turn cheese or help in the cheese room, um, then I'll do that. I'm not, I'm not uh, a good cheese maker. I might have been in another life, but I don't think I've got the sustained attention to stay in a cheese room, particularly for our make, which is a 10, 12 hour make. Mm. Um, and keep that sustained attention. Luckily, we've got extraordinary cheesemakers. Um, so, but but I'm very happy in the in the in the store to spend ten hours turning cheese or um, 
or all, all of those support roles. But, um, I don't I don't make the cheese, but I certainly milk the cows and milk the village water. Okay. Um, and I and, and you know just that, that that interaction with the land. We do have a, we have help. We have contractors who do a lot of our field work. Um, but you know, fifty years on the land for Patrick, my husband particularly, and and he's as enthusiastic about every field now as he was fifty years ago. Um, but it's it's a privileged place to be because you know you really can see this the, the cycles, but also the the successes of farming organically and um, and, and letting the land. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's potential. In your, um, your wonderful article, which I will link in the show notes about, titled, as I said in the introduction, Part of the Herd, you talk about how the landscape is your provider, your doctor, your friend and your teacher and how you learn from the cows. I just thought that was such a wonderful image and I, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about how the community that you're part of gives you each of those things. Well, we've already talked about that, the, the pond swims. Yeah. I mean, that certainly is my uh, key to my mental health. Um, I think so many things in farming are, are, aren't seen but are so valuable. Um, and if I think about all the jobs you might do in a 12-hour period and how um, they might stretch you on so many different levels, but actually um, give so much back as well. You know, the physical work. I mean, the physical work of farming is um, it, it's, it's difficult, but it's also, you know, you, you don't get that in many other walks of life. And I think I'm lucky to feel fit and strong, but I'm also very aware that our physical health is so important and we can't take it for granted because you know it it helps us you know every 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 inch in our body is helping us daily um, to do good work uh, and I think as a teacher it really does the things I've been taught from the cows and in many ways so I have four children um, and they're grown up um, and I didn't do as much milking when the kids were growing up and in a way, I wish I'd spent more time with the cows before I became a mother, <laughs> because I think I would have been a better mother. <laughs> and, um, so they, the, the, the cows are so, so um, sentient and so uh, insightful, and they see so much of us, our true personality and our true manifestations. And I think they can uh, be a good, you know, check to how you're starting your day and how you're manifesting right from the start of the day. I think that's a really good lesson. Mm. Um, to be shown how you are coming across <laughs> at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I certainly think that they've that they teach they've taught me to be a better person. Uh, I think cows are so um, trusting and, and forgiving. I think I, I'm struck again and again by their forgiving nature because we ask them to do so many things that they, they don't actually want to do. Certainly when you bring in a vet and you've got to test a whole herd or you've got to ask mm. them to do things that they don't want to do. And they they don't judge you. They don't hold on to that. They forgive and they, and they know how to move on. Mm. Uh, so they're... And I also think they're very... Um, I think that... that 
they, they bring out the caring nature in you. You want them to feel better for being with you. You want them to feel better um, for that hour and a half that you're all meeting up in the parlour twice a day. Um, so I think it, it brings out a nurturing side in anyone if they, if they are looking after cows. And on our scale, you know, it's quite a big herd. There are 90 milking cows. Yeah. Um, and then we're looking after 60-odd young stock and, and younger animals coming up behind. And we're a closed herd. So we don't buy in animals. They're, they're raised on the farm or craft on the farm and come through into milking herd. Um, and so that's quite a big herd of animals to, to work with. And I think that uh, requires certain understanding about how you might fit as a, as a another member of that um, and I think that a lot of that comes down to sort of being with them when they're young and then and I, and I never cease to be amazed by how cows can read people whether it's strangers or whether it's um, people who can you give us some so, examples of the relationships you've formed with some of them? You know, because you've seen some of them, I presume, from literally the moment they're born. And I'm, I'm fascinated to hear about how that relationship develops between human and cow and what, what form it takes. Yeah. Well, I, again, because of the scale, because it is larger than just having a micro dairy where you can really um, have close relationships we do have to sort of often think of us like a bit of a like a beehive like like a, mm. a group of bees that all know their roles and work together and uh, you know I have cows my I don't have favorites but you know the cows that I work with the closest may not be the cows that would let me touch them or stroke them or okay. have a photo with them you know so it's a very it's it's very individual relationships and, I, and, and the beauty of, of having them from calves is that it builds up, you know, you start, I have a different kind of language with the cows. I have a different tone of voice with the cows. And similar actually to the kind of voice that I had with the children when they were little. Mm. <laughs> um, and part of that is about, you know, it's, it's more when I'm trying to call them and if they're four fields away, I have to be able to project and I don't have a big voice. Um, so I have to, so I use slightly, um, I suppose it's a little bit like yodeling. Um, <laughs> and, and I think there have been examples of yodeling uh, anywhere where there are cows grazing and being milked and people herding them. Uh, and mine is not musical or melodic at all, but um, it does work. Mm -hmm. And if I start that when they're small, it means that um, even when I'm moving groups of calves around the farm to grazing, they will connect to my voice. And rather than having to chase them uh, with a quad bike or a dog, yep. I can lead them. And I'd much rather do that to move a group of animals around. I'd yeah. rather know that I've connected with them and that they are following me. Uh, possibly just because they know I'll take them to nice new grass. Or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that, that, that voice association is there and it means that we already have a bond which doesn't have to be a touchy-feely, cuddly uh, bond, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an understanding and a trust. Um, and so building that up from when they're very young and, and making sure that they know my voice and what they associate with my voice um, is a big part of starting to build relationships. 
Yeah. But so much of it is about trust. And, you know, I uh, we have um, quite an old clunky parlour. We milk in a tenor breast parlour. Um, a breast means that they all sort of walk in, they step up into a step, on another step. And then I'm working with their back. That, you know, I'm working at their level. They're slightly higher than me. But my shoulder is against their, their side. Yeah. And, and and so for me, you know, it's it's instinctive and it's really nice because a lot of it's about vibration. You know, they can feel me. I can feel them. I usually sing quite quietly to them all, but I don't need to. They know that there's that touch and that um, quite an intimate exchange from the time they're being milked, um, which I'm not sure you would get in a bigger parlour uh, where they're sort of out of reach. They're just putting a cluster on at arm's length almost. Yeah. Um, so I, I really value the way we milk them. Because once they're in the milking herd, you can build up that trust even more. And I need to because we have quite a lot of visitors to the farm and a lot of people like to have a go and I need to trust that they won't you know they won't flinch and they won't be mm. unsettling for them and that they're like they're not likely to kick the person yeah. trying to milk a cow for the first time. Do you feel like um you know you talked earlier about how you have to sometimes get them to do things they just don't want to do do you think that they do those things because they trust you or do you have a particular way of getting them to do because I, I can't even imagine trying to get a cow to do something that it doesn't want to do and so I'm fascinated by how that mechanism of that works yeah well then you are and, and that is the thing that's interesting about cows because you relate to them individually but you relate to them as a herd as well so if you're trying to tb test where you're trying to get 150 animals to go into a race and then it's through a crush and there's a strange person there and the, you know you're already that that's a that's that's going to bring in all their um flight instincts mm. um so then you're working with them as a herd and you're you're and there are two or three leader cows in the herd that i absolutely know will be at the front and will you know, give confidence to the rest of the herd and um, so it's really working with those key characters in the herd that you know the others will follow. And, um, and that's about observation and it's about understanding the dynamics of the herd. And, you know, and I, I can watch the cows um, going up to grazing and you know who will be at the front and you know who will be at the back. And, um, and so working within those herd dynamics is, is best way to be able to get cows to do things they don't want to do as a group of 80 odd 90 odd cows um, without having to shout wheeled sticks and mm. you know frighten everyone including themselves yeah okay so what what's your role within that herd you know if the cows are kind of have this relationship with you and they see you as one of them are you up there like the leader or, or what part do you play in that herd um, I do have to be the leader. I have to be. So I do have to be one of the. You know, I do have to know that they will. Uh, they won't take me on. You know, because cows can be quite aggressive with each other. You know, you see the pecking orders, and they can be awful to the sort of young heifers that join the herd, or anyone who's been out as a dry cow in another grazing group rejoins the herd. You know, they get bashed around by the leaders. So you have to know that you will be seen as the one that they will sort of uh, 
respect as a as a as a lead cow. <laughs> so I I think that that's my place. I I was watching something about moving cattle the other day, and it said that the best people um, to, who work with cows need to be um, confident introverts. And um, I would definitely say that I'm an introvert. Uh, I quite like the idea that I might be a confident introvert. <laughs> um, so I think that, that that there's that thing where they know, they, it does come down to trust. I do think that they trust that whatever they're asked to do by me or by Patrick or by Keith who works with us, they trust that we're not going to take them into danger. Yeah. And that's just a primal, simple uh, instincts that we, we yeah, we've established. Yeah, we're not going to take them into danger. Let's talk a bit about their sensitivity, because they're not necessarily an animal in a mainstream that is tied to you know being extraordinarily sensitive. And you've worked with them so closely for so long with such regularity. Could you talk a bit about? how you you know you feel they have this sensitivity which is just incredible i mean there are so many examples over the years of um situations and i don't have much experience with sheep <laughs> um so i can't compare and i often when we have sheep on the farm that are our neighbor sheep and they might be grazing for sure if you see one that's caught up in the brambles and you want to go and help it, I always think they don't really see that I'm trying to help them. Whereas um, cows, you can really see how when there's when something's gone wrong, when they've had a difficult calving, they really do sort of, again, it comes down to trust and they let you help them. And I would even say, and they're grateful, they're, they're grateful for the help. Um, there was one extraordinary situation um, with a cow, and it's a rather sad story. Um, but she was, she, she, she was, she went down. So you get down the cows, and they're such heavy beasts that when they, for whatever reason, when they're down on the ground, they, they find if they're not well, they've hurt themselves with the nerve. You know, the longer they're down, the harder it is for them to get up. And we had this cow that was um, like that, and and we tried and we tried, we tried lifting her and. Couldn't lift her, but um, we were. Well, we did lift her, but it wasn't helping. And after about a week, um, I realized we were going to have to have her um, destroyed. And uh, I went in and I just sat down with her and I cried <laughs> for various reasons, but I was <laughs> crying. And um, she licked my head <laughs> for a sustained you know, amount of time. She, you know, she was comforting me. And, um, you know, that's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing that, you know, she'd obviously was in a difficult place herself. But she mm. had the consideration, the empathy, the, you know, the, the trust and the love to comfort me. <laughs> mm. uh, and there have been so many examples of that, you know, where you just see how, how they are looking at you, reading you and sensing so much about you. And I, as I say, I have this cow that I work with a lot, um, Oats and Peas, who is the leader cow, not because she's very dominant or bossy, but just because when they go to grass, she sets the pace and everyone follows her. And sometimes if I know I've got a difficult, you know, I've got to move them out onto the road and then go up to crossroads and then go turn right, and you know, it's a difficult ask. 
And I remember one once I looked and she wasn't at the front ready to join me as my co-worker. She was right at the back. And I thought, goodness, she's not going to help me today. And I and I was nervous, you know, I, I was I thought this isn't going to go as easily as I expected. So I opened the gate and I thought, goodness, you know, I I don't have a relationship with the one who's at the front. She's not going to do what Oates and he's doing. And um and as soon as I moved the latch on the gate, I saw Oates and Keys go from the back, move through the herd, which was tightly packed mm. as they were all waiting at the gate, right next to, at my shoulder, and ready to go. And, you know, to have that kind of relationship with a cow who actually doesn't like being touched, you know, she wouldn't want me to stroke her, say thank you or anything, but we can look at each other mm. and know that there's a, there's a job to be done and we can do it together. That's wonderful. <laughs> and, you know... It's so empowering and heartening. Yeah, yeah. I feel um, hearing your story of the cow that was down gave me goosebumps because just incredible. Oh. And I feel it's such a travesty the way that, you know, now these days more cows are being kept in such confined conditions and so many of them and treated in a way that is really inhumane. And I'm so grateful for people like yourself and Patrick who are doing the work to um, to keep cows in a, a beautiful and humane way and produce amazing food. So it it just makes me grateful for the the people like you who are doing such amazing work. Well, I think scale is fascinating because uh, you know I could often ask myself, at what scale would we stop relating to them individually and and as a group? And, um, I think we are in terms of our well, obviously we we choose the amount of animals we have in relation to the land that we have and what the land can produce for them and obviously that draws a line and, and thank goodness you know it'd be very tempting to say you know we can sell more cheese we have lots mm. of fantastic customers um therefore we should have a bit more milk therefore you know, either we squeeze more out of the cows by buying in a different kind of feed and not feeding them the homegrown um, forage and oats that we grow mm. or we um you know, or we get more cows um, to, to, to supply that demand. But, you know, that, there's something very empowering about being, being limited by the land as well. Yeah, yeah, completely. I just um, interviewed, I think I told you, Carwin Graves recently oh. and, and his book, Welsh Food Stories, you know, The Land That You Are On, the, the culinary... Um, delights that have come from that place uh, but very very limited because like you just said limited by the land that was around them and what could grow in that land and Wales in particular is so diverse that has so many different kind of growing environments but it's there's there's like you said there's an empowerment in taking what's around you and producing something sustaining nutrient full of nutrients and beautiful from it completely. Absolutely. And his book is such a gift because I don't think, you know, I don't think anybody's really shouted about the extraordinary diversity of food produced in Wales, you know, and, and he really is um, celebrating it so beautifully. And, um, and I think it's very easy to say, oh, Wales just grows grass, but, you know, we are perfectly, uh, you know, I think a generation ago, there were a hundred odd um, mills in, in just this area where we are alone, and yet now we're, very, we're one of very few growers who grow cereals in our land, springs and oats. Um, and, and yet there is absolutely potential to grow our cereals and to grow a lot more fruit and veg. And, 
And I love that idea of the diversity of nutrition's yeah. possible per egg, um, but working obviously with what the land can do. And it can do a lot. We are, we're very fortunate in Wales. Yeah. How do you feel about the land that you're working on, you know, and that you're taking care of? What, what, what are your emotions towards it? Oh, you know, uh, again, that's, that, I, can, I can get goosebumps just thinking about um, this land because, you know, there is so much magic in Wales and it's, a, it's at every level. It's in the language, it's in the folklore, it's in the song and it's in nature and, and in the farm landscape. Um, Patrick said something about, you know, how it feels like nature can still be in the ascendant uh, around us. And, um, but I, I also, going back to Carwin's book and the, some of the work that Carwin's doing, um, I'm very, very uh, mindful of that connection to what went before and, um, and the history of land use and land production in Wales, because it's, it's a fascinating one. And I, I think... Uh, we, we need to make sure that we don't lose it, which is a lot um, about celebrating Wales through its language and its song. And so I think there's a lot for me to do in, in, in reconnecting with what went on in the past here and understand um, the history of this land. But, you know, it, it's such an extraordinary place to be because, you know, we have a patchwork of fields they all have their own individual identity they all have their own individual gift to give to us and the cows and um, I think we have to be really careful to, to, to just keep letting that natural potential of what the land can offer keeping that very much alive yeah yeah I think that what what went before you know you said and I I feel like with your cheese making there, you, you are carrying on, you know, you, are, you have in life still a tradition that definitely went before because Wales is so, um, has such a rich history of cheese making. And I wondered if we could kind of segue into your cheese making a little bit. Um, you, you have a purpose-built dairy there, so you know, you're getting the milk from the cows and you're actually making the cheese on site. Could you tell us a little bit about the dairy and the process and the recipe for your particular cheese? Yeah, um, it's evolved a lot since it started. I think we're, we're fortunate in the UK that there's a, there's a growing renaissance of um, farmhouse and artisan cheese making, which is just extraordinary. And it's down to a few visionary people um, 30, 40 years ago, um, helping to revive some of the old recipes cheese making and, and some of the almost lost farmhouse cheeses. Um, so there's a very joined up community of people passionate about selling farmhouse and artisan cheese mm -hmm. and people um, making cheese on farm. Um, so we are very grateful to have had the most amazing influences and friendships that have helped us uh, travel this journey of, of trying to find the best way to express our farm through cheese. Um, and a lot of it is uh, about going back, going back and looking at what went before. And um, I, I think I can say that ours is a very, very traditional cheddar make. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, over the years, you know, cheddar is a global commodity cheese. You can find it in the supermarket um, anywhere, probably in the world. In yeah. one way. But um, ours is a very, very, just going back to how it was 
uh, as they sort of turned from farmhouse cheese making and started to commercialize it. We've gone back to those sort of recipes, the slower, the gentler recipes, um, where we're not trying to go fast and hard to create what's eventually become a commodity. So um, cheddar is quite difficult to make. It's a long day. Um, um, but another thing we're fortunate about is, and again, partly it's through just making connections. Um, we have the most extraordinary cheesemakers that pass through and that are still with us, um, who have always been curious, uh, and curiosity and questioning and wanting to explore um, the real truth behind our cheesemaking. Um, so that means going back into the old books. And I, I know that when I look at sort of current uh, journals or reports or writings on cheese or on farming, actually, uh, you can be quickly become bamboozled and potentially lose confidence just by the jargon, the language. Okay. But if you go back to the old books, you know, the books that were written, uh, if, certainly for our cheese making, at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, and for our farming, farming again, the, the early 1900s into the 30s and 40s and 50s, those are so much more accessible, so much more confidence, mm. and so much more common sense. And I think there's um, there's a there's a way to, to, to there's something very affirming about reading things that make sense. And so. Uh, yeah, our cheese making is a very, it's, it's probably a slower, gentler make than most cheddars. Um, and again, we have cheese makers that are dealing with a very, you know, it's a raw milk cheese. Um, our milk changes every day. We'll never be able to promise the same butter fat and protein and, mm. and solids, constituency and ratios. Uh, so it really takes an intuitive um, curious cheese maker to say, ah, the milk's behaving this way today. I'll respond this way. Um, and so there's a conversation there in the cheese room. And I think another thing we're very lucky about is that most of our cheese makers, um, certainly in the last few years, have also worked on the farm. So they've got that connection to the milk and that respect for the milk and um, that trust in the milk that can only come from when you've milked a cow or when you've looked after cows and been on the land with the cows. So we're very, again, scale is an interesting thing because, you know, if we got too big, we wouldn't be able to have that kind of interconnectedness between the farm and the cheese. Yeah, yeah. I think the uniformity is a really interesting point because, you know, as um, consumers, we've been taught to want to expect the same thing every single time. You know, we want a packet of cheese to taste the same as the last packet of cheese we had. We want a beer to taste exactly the same as it tasted six months ago. And in reality, food is not that way. You know, the soil changes, the seasons change, the pests, the, the you know, the protein and the carbs and all the individual ingredients change. And therefore, in reality, food is not the same and we're doing something to it to make it the same, which is unnatural. And so, you know, to hear that your cheesemakers are taking that milk and it's different, you know, week by week, month by month, year by year, and they understanding how to get the best out of that particular type of milk, but that in the end, your cheese isn't necessarily going to taste the same. You know, each round of cheese you make is going to be unique because it's, it's 
it's from those animals. It's from that milk. It's from that weather. It's from whatever they, whatever they were eating. And it's it's not something that our, our food society is moving towards. You know, we seem to be moving towards this uniformity. And yet there's such beauty and um, knowledge and delicacy and value and integrity in artisanal cheese like your cheese that tastes different each time and again we are lucky and so and i i'm so feel so fortunate that all the customers there you know there's an amazing community of independent retailers mm. that are selling our cheese uh, and that are as passionate about sharing that diversity of flavors and appreciating that bandwidth of profiles um, that we we couldn't do it without them. Yeah. They really, and and I would say virtually every customer, yeah, no, every customer we sell our cheese to is a relationship. So we are not just a name in a catalogue. You know, they they visit the farm. They some of them spend two to you know one or two nights here. They'll milk the cows. They'll walk the fields. And and so to have that kind of commitment and support mm. from the people who are buying your cheese to sell on to, to customers. Um, you know, we couldn't ask for better champions. Yeah. That's beautiful. There are so many here. There are so many heroes in the yes. in this food world, and it it yes. feels to me like I, mean, I got goosebumps again when you were talking about it. Because the more that we're involved with our food, the closer we are. The more we value it, the more we care about it. The more we care about keeping that environment and that sustainability. And so it's the way that we are able to champion this way of making food as opposed to an industrial way going forward and it, it and also it's so fulfilling personally to build those relationships with farmers that it um yeah. from, from my end that my way of eating now when I have relationships with you know the man that I buy my meat from the people that I buy my cheese from where I get my eggs from I just feel so different about my food when it's on my plate to how I did much earlier in my life when I was being fed from a supermarket you know and I didn't feel that it I have such gratitude and I feel so kind of conscious and alive in life you know yeah, and inspired mm. yeah completely yeah. no and it works both ways you know so for the producer it's so yeah you know it's such a, a powerful thing when 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 you know we get cheese oh, we've had visitors from all over the world but you know when just a, a cheesemonger who hasn't been here before but has been selling our cheese, uh, you know, um, giving it to customers uh, as a sample or, or talking about it from what they've read. And then they come here and experience the beauty of this place. I mean, even if we didn't even, even if we just let them go around the fields, they would, they would connect, they would understand why our cheese is disappears. And so many of the smells, you know, you can open a habit. And it would have been, you know, it would have been traveling, it would have been, but you open the box and you can smell our farm. Mm. And I think just the microbiology of reconnecting with the microbiology, of, because cheese is such a live food, isn't it? Mm. And, you know, you can look at the rind and you can see so much, uh, so many strong impressions just from opening the cheese, looking at the rind and smelling the cheese. And, um, and those all um, come alive in the visit. How do you feel about our food world? Do you want to see change like we do? If so, head over to patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast 
and help support us to get this work out as far and wide as we can. To say thank you, we've got a host of extra ancestral food material to share with you. You can connect with us more deeply via our Patreon-exclusive podcasts, our after-show chats, our dedicated forum and our ancestral food get-togethers. And there's a library of downloads that will support you in your own kitchen. By joining, you'll be really helping us to continue making this podcast and to focus on having a bigger impact, reaching more people, making a greater difference. So we can move together towards the future food world we all want to see. We've got four levels of support to suit different pockets. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast for all the details. Why do you make your cheese with raw milk? Why do you decide to go down that route and not pasteurise? Um, it, it was just, I mean, we do have to pasteurise sometimes. Uh, so we can look at the contrast. Um, you know, we have to pasteurise if we're under TB restrictions. We have okay. to pasteurise, we would pasteurise some batches for export um, because they would only um, take them as, so, so we do pasteurise and we can look at the difference. And um, pasteurising, you get this blank slate, obviously, yeah. um, because you've taken a lot. Mm. Um, and the cheese is good. It tastes great because the milk is good. Um, but it doesn't have that complexity and that layer, those layers of flavour. And it doesn't, it's not the gift of, um, of flavours that the raw milk is. Um, it was a no-brainer for us to always make a raw milk cheese, partly because of some of the inspiration from uh, amazing other cheesemakers that helped us get started. Um, but, you know, we, we know how delicious our milk is. We drink it every day. You know, why would we want to, yeah. to pasteurise it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love what you said about the gift of flavours. That's a really nice phrase that it, it's, it's kind of a bounty. It's a gift that's, that's coming to you. It's lovely. Yeah, and I think it's a generous cheese. You know, I, I like to think that it's a generous cheese. That, you know, it stays with you for longer than just the mouthful it's gone. Yeah. It's a generous cheese. It keeps on giving. For That's nice. A long time. It's not a strong cheese. Um, and often when I've done a few food fairs and things where I've been sampling out. And, uh, often people use cheddar, they want a strong cheddar. And they'll come and they'll say, oh, I... Uh, and, I, and I sort of explain it, and then they'll say, oh, well, I don't know what to expect. If it's not strong, I only like strong. And then they'll take a piece, and then I'll see them walk away, and then I'll see them slow down as they're walking <laughs> away. And then they might turn around and come back. And, and just because that um, complexity uh, and those layers that keep on staying stay in the mouth, even after you've uh, walked away. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. <laughs> that's lovely. It's, it's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> Your cheese is called Havod, which is H-A-F-O-D. Can you explain to listeners why you called it that? Well, there were various reasons. Um, it mostly comes back to that we, we, we rent some land called Havod. Havod is a word that you'll see in a lot of places around Wales. It's, it means uh, summer pasture. So it's that, it, it goes back to that idea of transhumance, where you take animals to certain land at certain times of the year so for grazing in the summer we rent some land which is a couple of miles away we've been renting it for 40 odd years it's extraordinary land um, down at down at a lot of river meadows and then some 
land above the road. Um, and it is some of it's a site of special scientific interest in terms of grassland. So again, um, you know, this is that's 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 farming has created that site of special scientific interest in, through meadows and haymaking. Mm. Um, and, and it's so it's beautiful land where we send our dry cows and our in calf heifers some years um, between. Well, you know, we can take them as soon as we could be taking them this weekend. So they could go, they could go down as soon as the conditions allow. And then they'll stay there uh, in various groups. They'll come and go um, through to September. So that's land that we have the connection with. But in a bigger picture, it is such an, uh, a wonderful idea when you connect to cheese. And there is so much of it where the animals go on to land and uh, the cheese is made. If you think about some of the alcohol pastures and the transients moving the cattle out in the summer. Uh, it's certainly nothing as uh, big or ambitious as that, but it is, it is a beautiful word. Um, it's also very easy to pronounce. So, you know, if we'd used our farm name, which is um, Bochwerden and Bauch, uh, that's not so easy to, yeah. <laughs> to name a cheese after. <laughs> so it was a nice, easy word as well. Yeah, no, it, it's... But it is a beautiful image as well. It's got lots wrapped up in it, for sure. Yeah. Yes. Let's, um, before I let you go, let's talk a bit about oats. People um, who listen to the podcast regularly will know I'm rather enthusiastic about oats. And your farm doesn't just um, have cows. You're, you are a mixed farm. And as such, you do grow some crops. So you've got spring-sown cereals, cereals in a arable rotation. And I think I read that about half your farm is arable and half is pasture for the cows is that right yeah. well in the rotation where you are so half of the farm is is, is can be put into the arable oh, rotation but we only grow 20 odd acres a year so it's just moving around the farm and it'll be a couple of years of cereals and then five six years going back to grass ah, i see okay so that um cereal growing is is adding to your biodiversity there and and also building your own self-sufficiency because you're using those crops to feed your cows. Um, the particular crops that I'm interested in are oats, and I know that you joined the Gaia Foundation Seed Sovereignty Network that's reviving heritage cereal grains in Wales. And you got some, I believe, some black and some grey oat seed and then planted them by hand in 2021, and then slowly you're scaling that up. Tell us a little bit about how you feel about that and what you're doing with the oats there. Uh, I mean, the whole, I don't know how much Carwin talked about it, but the whole story of how that came about mm. is so beautiful and so rooted in place and in language and soul, actually. Mm. Um, so uh, there's an amazing farmer called Gerald Miles who was trying to find these black oats from his youth that he remembered growing as a boy. And I think he wrote to Carwin's Weekly, he um, approached seed libraries, uh, and had no luck. And then an extraordinary young man called Owen Shears, who was uh, who had travelled widely in the world and was looking at sort of indigenous um, song that was being lost. And suddenly thought, well, that's happening in my county of West Wales. And so he came back home and started. He had started uh, trying to find some of the old songs from the land and the poems and putting to music and just reviving lost song of um, agriculture and rural life in Wales and, and in particular in our county and so he was 
joining up farmers through song and he met Gerald and 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 he also knew Yuan, who's an extraordinary farmer just a bit further up the coast, who was actually growing these black oats and the grey oats um, for his chickens quietly and hadn't stopped. Mm. So that, that, along with lots of other very enthusiastic, amazing people, the Welsh Grain Network, uh, facilitated by the Guy Foundation, was born. And um, so there are lots of varieties of wheats, barleys, rice, and some extraordinary oats that were being, some of them only in small envelopes being handed out to um, people who were willing to grow them, to bulk them from all seed. And we were given two sweetie jars uh, of one of, oat, one of the black oats, but mixed with uh, other wild oats and white oats as well, and, and grey oats, and we grew them uh, so one harvest was all done by hand, sown by hand, weeded by hand, harvested by hand. The following year, we were able to go back to, to the machinery that we used for the rest of our oats, which are just anonymous organic oats that we buy in. Mm -hmm. um, and so this year, we put in an acre of these plants. So we've reached that point where we would almost imagine, you know, having enough oats next year. Mm. to have a whole field um they're not our oats at the moment we're just bulking them for the grain network but it would be but they're doing lots of work as well to understand the viability and whether there's possibility to process the oats and and use them more widely um we grow oats to feed our cows we um we combine them in in September, uh, usually, you know, we get the weather windows and then we're able to get to draw afterwards, which is obviously mm -hmm. our wedding. Um, and then we mill them daily. I haven't done it yet for today, but we mill them on a roller mill and, and, and feed that um, muesli, if you like, in the, in the parlor. Um, and so we haven't tried that with the black oats yet, but um, because at the moment we are just growing them for seed. Um, but they are, they're extraordinary. They're in the fields, they look, amazing they're tall they're um they're very beautiful they're very elegant looking oats in the field <laughs> uh and the, and the oat itself is this beautiful black color and very shiny so i think that's probably a really good oil content i think they used to feed black oats to racehorses um so they're they're an amazing crop and you do see the wildlife you know all the all the animal, all the birds and badgers and that would go for our crops once they're ready once they're ready seem to home in on those uh, <laughs> native folks. So I think they know something that we don't, yeah. we only intuitively feel, they already know it. So it will be fascinating as the, as the years go on to, to find out the, sort of the nutrition in these oats mm. and hopefully eventually to imagine, you know, growing the field scale crop of, um, of these oats, which are so suited to place and which are so rooted in history yeah. and and absolutely um, should be revived yeah. and imagined again in the landscape. So you haven't, and again, you haven't eaten any of those oats, have you? Because you're just growing them No, all. we chewed oh. them. You know, okay. we, we chewed them in the field when we pasted them, but we haven't attempted to mill them. I think, you know, we can, we'll, the, the, the group is, has looked at, they, they've, they've done a few recipes with them. Mm. So there are, there are all sorts of possibilities, but we haven't, mm. cows haven't. I am. Um, We're very excited. I'll put a link in the show notes because there is a beautiful video which explains that oh. project that someone really put some love into, and it it highlights the farmers that you were talking about, and just the, the kind of miracle of this, you know, music researcher who 
brought them back oh, together. Oh, and um, yeah. it's such a joyful project. You know, whatever I've read about it just seems so just joyful and, and enthusiastic and yeah. just wonderful things happening. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people who are listening yeah. can go and watch that video. And I wrote a piece for the Sustainable Food Trust about it, about, about it from a farmer's perspective. Um, because again, you know, we, we can very easily become um, or look at things from a machine scale uh, and think about, you know, how is the, the drill when we get into the field? You know, do we need to widen that gate? And so to grow a, grow a um, cereals on a human scale again was, was, was an extraordinary reconnecting Thing. And I think that's what's so beautiful about what can happen when you start to sort of go small. Mm. <laughs> Is you just you just strengthen all the connections that are so important to, to, to growing food. Yeah, absolutely, completely. I'll um I'll link the article that you wrote because I have read that. I've seen that on the Sustainable Food Trust website. Um, we um we haven't mentioned. But we have a previous episode, number 46, where I talked to Rebecca's husband, Patrick Holden. So you can link the kind of two together um, because the farm that we talk about in that episode is the very same farm that Rebecca's with those cows every day. Thank you ever so much. Where can people come and see pictures of your farm and potentially buy the cheese and just find out more about you? Well, I'm not, we're not very good at marketing, so which is why, again, I'm so grateful for those cheesemongers that are. Mm. Um, it's available. It's available online. We have a website, um, www.holdingfarmdairy.co.uk. Um, I do Instagram as much as I can. I don't do any of the others, but um, Instagram is at cheese. Okay. And uh, and again, you know, Patrick's wider work. There's a lot to talk about there. And sustainable food trust and, and just looking at uh, food systems and, and, and again you know there's an ache of urgency there with the bigger food systems just try and deter. I, I just I, I, this idea of scale and I just feel very fortunate that what we do is, is, is still I consider it a human scale yeah. yeah so much of food production and food engagement uh, needs to go back to yeah, and, and that's really why I wanted to to take what you're doing and, and showcase it just for an hour because it is human and it goes right down to the connections you have with with the cows every day and the variety in the cheese and the weather and the land and it's just it's so it's epitomizes what good food is and good food is sustainable as well as really really tasty and, and is beneficial for everyone involved and the fact that you know it's, it's clear that you feel so um grateful and empowered for the role that you're doing there you know you're ever so happy by the sound of it with your work <laughs> and that's just a wonderful <laughs> thing because it's it's catching you know oh well I often say you know talking Patrick is Tigger and I'm eel <laughs> uh, because I tend to be a little bit stuck in the thistle, thistles <laughs> seeing it. And, and he sees opportunity after opportunity in it. And as I say, he's enthusiastic about every field on this farm as he was 50 years ago. Um, there's something very, um, very exciting about that. So he has lots of big ideas for going forward. And I think one of them is about bringing people to 
farms because farms are at such extraordinary stages for exchange and conversation for engagement so that's his next big chapter yeah, I, I remember talking to him about that and just him saying that people's views have been completely changed just by spending a couple of days with you and and how it we are so removed from it now. You know, you talked about physicality at the beginning and how the farm keeps you fit. And I think about, you know, I live in Italy. I think about the Italian grandmothers that everyone knows and, they you know, they're living till 90 and, and everyone thinks, oh, it's the olive oil and that. And then I, I see them all still out over their beans and their tomatoes, you know, bending down, going out every day, tilling and, you know, planting and harvesting. And they're, they're doing that every single day. That's how they've lived. And that's a huge part of them living till 90. You know, it's not just that they're eating olive oil. It's that they're going out in the light and the air and they're moving themselves every day. And it's, um, it's a real kind of... Um, dedication to the land that they live like that and and I feel like yes. it's part that's part of the story as well you know making it sustainable is making humankind sustainable as well it's keeping us healthy like you said yes yeah and I mean we haven't even started to talk about this, sort of the microbiology the sort of mm. those 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 nutrients that can be found that we you know I when I think about the cows I think about wild health is another thing that's incredibly positive about if you're farming the land this way then you're enabling that wild health everything that goes on in the hedgerows everything that mm. goes on in the edge of the field or the different part of the field those individual fields have their individual wild health potential which we can tap into too which and that which i hope comes across the trees as well so that you're connecting with nature and nature's nature's power yeah yeah, everything everything about what you're doing is amazing. Thank you for the work that you and Patrick are doing there. I'm I'm ever so grateful. And I just want to come and try some of the cheese. I haven't had any. I'm hoping that I can yes. get back to the UK in the summer and I'm gonna be on the trail of some of your cheese. <laughs> oh well I always I'm always grateful for visitors because I think you know West Wales is quite a, a bit of a way to get to and anyone who's sort of comes as far as us, I sort of think, oh, you know, come visit, come say, come. Come milk the cows. Yeah. <laughs> Come eat some cheese. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you ever so much for your time, Rebecca. I'm really, really oh, grateful. Thank and, you. And um, for sharing what you do with the people who listen to us. Thank you ever so much. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs>